Good morning. Good morning. This morning, I want to ask you, I wonder if you've ever felt afraid, like really, really afraid. Perhaps you can think of a moment when you've genuinely feared for your life. For some of us in this room, that won't be a reality, but some of you may have had moments when you've genuinely been afraid or you felt incredibly anxious or worried. I'm not going to ask you to relive that moment fully, but I want you to imagine it for a moment. What was it that made you feel safe or calm, if anything? Was there anything that made you feel better? Maybe it was simply the moment passing or perhaps the encouragement of the people around you. Fear, anxiety and worry are part of our human experience. We all know them. Being a human being is really hard. Life can be difficult, our circumstances can be difficult, and even if we aren't fearful or worried, I know that there will be people in this room this morning going through incredibly difficult circumstances. And this morning, as we read the Bible, we're going to encounter a story about human experience, about fear, and how God meets people in the midst of any circumstance. So, hello, my name is Becca. Thank you. Um, I'm really excited to be able to share with you from Scripture this morning. Um, I've been part of this church community for over 10 years. I'm married to John, and we have a daughter called Phoebe, and we're excited to meet a new little one in a couple of months. Um, Thanks. Um, I'm passionate about knowing and loving Jesus, first and foremost. And secondly, helping others to do the same. So my prayer for us this morning is that as we read the Bible, we will know Jesus more and we will love him more. Amen. So I'm really thrilled to be able to continue our journey through John together by looking at John chapter 6, verses 16 to 21. If you have a Bible, feel free to turn. Um, But I'm just going to explain a little bit about where we are in the context of John. So last week, Keith shared with us about the story of one of Jesus' miracles, feeding 5,000 plus people on a few loaves of bread and some fish. And that story then continues on in chapter 6 from verse 22 onwards. And Jesus explains that miracle a little bit and talks about one of the names that he gives himself, which is the bread of life. And so today we're going to be looking at a sort of interlude to two stories as Jesus performs another sign or a miracle. He walks on water in the middle of a storm. Um, And it feels like I can say that quite flippantly, um, that we're going to be looking at Jesus walking on water. But it is a miracle and it's wonderful and it's amazing and it's proof that Jesus is God. Um, But ultimately, the most amazing thing about the story is is not that Jesus walks on water. Um, And we're going to be looking at that. While it does feel like a bit of a strange story wedged into the middle, it stands to reason that this isn't just an odd interjection, but more of a continuation of the story of the feeding of the 5,000 and all of the stories of the signs and wonders that Jesus has done that we've already looked at in this series. So let's read it. It'll be on the screen, but if you want to follow along in the Bible, on your phone, whatever, that's great. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat and they were frightened. 
But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. You might notice that there's actually kind of two miracles in this, although the second one is a bit strange, which is the first one, Jesus walking on water, and the second one, immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So somehow they transported from the middle of the sea to somewhere else, but we're not going to focus on that part. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to unpack this passage a bit more. So, Father, thank you that you reveal yourself to us through your word. And thank you that the word became flesh and made its dwelling among us, that we can see who Jesus is through the words of scripture. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come now, that you would illuminate what you have said already, and that you would speak to our hearts and our minds. Lord, I pray that you would increase and I would decrease. And Lord, that we would see you, that we would know you, and we would love you. Amen. So throughout the book of John, this is one of a mere handful of miracles. It's also included in Matthew and Mark. Um, We can assume that one of the accounts in Mark, which you can find in Mark chapter 6, is the same story. Um, But other stories vary in the details that they include or that they omit. So it stands to reason that Jesus actually walks on water quite a few times. And this is just one of the stories about it happening. Um, But John chooses to share this story in this way, and when we look through the entire narrative of this book of John, this eyewitness account of Jesus' life, we begin to understand why. This story isn't a mere blip or an interlude to some nice stories about food, but speaks to a fundamental truth of what John is trying to communicate through this whole book that he's written. Um, Stephen explained in the first sermon in this series that as we read later in John in chapter 20, these signs are written, all of the signs that we're going to be looking at through these series, so that you, or us, the reader, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that we may have life in his name. And so this story isn't an anomaly or a strange passage about a boat trip, but ultimately it serves to show us that Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited saviour, and that Jesus is God himself making his dwelling among us. This story is about how God meets us in the mess and hardship of our human experience and gives us comfort and peace. And that's the lens that we want to use as we unpack this passage. My prayer for us as we read through is that we'll recognize who Jesus is and what he's like, and we'll see how this is good news for every circumstance that we're facing. So as we begin this story, John paints a picture for us of the situation the disciples found themselves in. It starts out not being too bad. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. We now know that the sea that John's referring to here is the Sea of Galilee, and the journey was probably about six miles across. So they're getting ready for a pretty hefty journey quite late in the day. Um, We don't know exactly when evening is, but that's quite late in the day. Um, And then it begins to get a little bit more dicey, as John tells us it was now dark. Um, A lot of them would have been fishermen, and they would have been used to going out on the sea in the dark. But still, it doesn't paint a beautiful picture. Um, And then it gets worse, because we hear that Jesus had not yet come to them. Um, It seems strange to include that, that Jesus hasn't arrived yet. And I often wonder when I read this passage how they expected him to get there. But 
it doesn't say. And John includes it, so it seems that it's really bad news for them. It's an important thing that Jesus has not yet come. And then it starts to get worse. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. The boats wouldn't have been fit for storms, and their situation gets worse and worse. In the darkness and in the storm, we might be able to imagine how they were feeling. They're not making good headway for land. If you read in the account that Mark writes, it tells us that they've reached the fourth hour of the night by this point, roughly 3 a.m., and they've been rowing for about eight hours. They would have been tired and frustrated and afraid and worried. It's likely that the disciples, some of whom were fishermen, were familiar with people dying on their boats in such situations. Storms were a tricky business. Perhaps you felt you can relate to how the disciples are feeling. Maybe over this year or recently, you've been in a situation where everything feels like a storm. Maybe you've faced health difficulties or financial struggles. You've had a difficult time at work or with your studies, whatever it is. Over the last few years, there have been times that I felt like I'm in a headwind going absolutely nowhere. I've been frustrated. I've been tired, feeling like I'm rowing further and further out into nothing and I'll never reach the other side. I too have been afraid, wondering where Jesus is in the midst of the storm and if it's ever really going to end. You might feel the same way. There are promises and words over my life that I am yet to see fulfilled. As a church and as a network of churches in regions beyond, there are promises and words that we've been given that we haven't seen come fully to fruition yet. It can feel sometimes like we're rowing into a headwind and we're wondering where Jesus is in the midst of the storm. For the disciples, this feeling would have been terrifying. They're in the midst of a rough sea without their friend with whom they feel safe. But John chooses to include this story not only as a literal portrayal of a story that actually happened, of the disciples' anguish, but it also shows us a deeper symbolic meaning. The fear, frustration, tiredness, anxiety, and hopelessness that the disciples experience in this story would have compounded the experience of the people of God throughout thousands and thousands of years, from generation to generation as they waited for the Messiah to come to them. But he has not yet come. Throughout scripture, we read time and time again of the anticipation of the people of God for him to come and rescue them from their suffering. They were stuck waiting for someone to come and uproot them from their frustration and their fear. They have been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for a promised Messiah to come and reconcile them to God. It's no mistake that this story happens on the sea. If you read through scripture, the sea is used as a picture symbolically to suggest sin and death and judgment. The disciples' journey across the sea mirrors the journey of the people of God, awaiting with eager anticipation the promised Messiah to save them from their sin and bring them back to God. They know that the law is insufficient to save them and that God needs to intervene. Much like the disciples' attempts to row across this sea, they know that their attempts have been futile. They cannot reconcile themselves to God. We cannot reconcile ourselves to God by ourselves. In this story, we hear echoes of the hope for the Christ to come, as John tells us that Jesus had not yet come to them. 
Without him, the people of God are hopeless. Without him, the disciples in this story are hopeless. The situation remains bleak and fear is the driving force. All hope may have seemed lost to them. John then tells us that they'd rode about three or four miles, roughly halfway across the sea. They're stuck. And it's in this moment that we see God step in. A figure appears to them walking on water. Um, In Mark's account, the disciples believe it to be a ghost. But in this one, we're told straight away, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. And they're frightened. They're understandably afraid. That kind of makes more sense if you think it's a ghost. But there's not only the possibility of death as the waves crash against their boat, because the storm is still happening, even though Jesus is walking towards them. But there's a strange figure approaching. They're frightened because they don't understand what's happening. They aren't expecting Jesus to come to them in this way. They aren't anticipating this miracle. A running theme of the Gospels is that the disciples just don't get it. And they still haven't realized it's Jesus coming towards them. They've just seen him feed 5,000 plus people with barely anything. But yet they still don't anticipate the miracle. They still haven't realized that Jesus is the Christ. They still haven't grasped it. And so they don't know immediately that this is Jesus walking towards them. In these moments, I don't know about you, but I always find it so easy to imagine that I would have got it straight away. I'd have been like, oh yeah, it must be Jesus coming to save us. I would have understood what Jesus was saying when he says all those cryptic sermons and messages. I would have known that it was him walking on water. In my arrogance, I believe so often that I would have got it right at this point. But the disciples don't, and often I don't either. So often I'm caught up in my own fear or worry, and in the midst of the sea, in the midst of the storm, I miss Jesus standing right in front of me. Fortunately, Jesus is gracious with me, and he is with the disciples right here as well. Rather than bang them over the head with it, as I probably would, he simply speaks to them in their fear in the midst of the storm and declares, it is I, do not be afraid. I asked you earlier to remember your experiences of fear, anxiety, or worry. Whenever I think of these experiences in my life, the most substantial comfort to me has always been the people around me. As I was preparing this um, sermon, I was thinking about what happens when my daughter Phoebe, who's nearly two years old, starts to fear or to worry. When she's climbing at the park and she feels like she's going to fall down, or when she meets someone new, she'll almost immediately shout, Mummy, 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 to me, anxiously expecting me to come and get her. And what is my response? Do I yell, Why are you afraid? Stop being silly. Of course not. My first response is always... Mummy's here. Mummy's here. I'm here. And in this moment, as Jesus says, it is I, he is speaking with that same tenderness. It's a beautiful statement. There is so much kindness in Jesus. Not, you idiots, why are you afraid? Of course it's me. Of course I'm going to come. I just fed 5,000 people. Of course I'm going to walk on water. There are many moments throughout the accounts of Jesus' life where he is rightfully blunt with people. But in this moment, recognizing their fear and their worry, he tenderly declares, it is I, do not be afraid. Jesus meets the disciples amidst their despair, while they're worried and doubting, while they cannot see them, 
see him and still he reveals himself. It's important to note that in John's account here of this storm, Jesus doesn't calm the storm. In other stories, we can read that Jesus says to the storm, be still and it is still. But in this story, the storm continues throughout. It doesn't stop. But instead, Jesus travels with the disciples in the midst of the storm. Here we see the gracious love of their friend as he goes with them in the middle of their trial. And after this, their fear is allayed and they were glad to take him into the boat. They recognize now that their problems are finished because Jesus is here and he has come to save them. And his appearance here provides a twofold assurance for the disciples and for us. Firstly, Jesus' proclamation of it is I shows them that their friend is here. The one who can turn water into wine, can feed multitudes and do amazing healing miracles. He has arrived. Jesus knows them. He's walked with them. They know that they can trust him. And so they ought not to fear. And so it is for us in the midst of whatever circumstances we find ourselves. Jesus offers us close intimacy as a friend. And his personal presence gives us hope that the storm cannot last forever and that he will walk through it with us. We can know that when Jesus says, it is I, do not be afraid, that he is trustworthy. But secondly, Jesus is not merely saying, hey, it's your friend. We're all fine now. The actual Greek here when he says, it is I, is the phrase, I am. A phrase that resounds throughout scripture as the name for Yahweh, God himself. This is the same term that we see in just a few chapters in John later, where Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, and made the Pharisees pick up stones to stone him because he was claiming to be the Messiah. Jesus is not making a mistake when he says this. He is saying to these disciples, he is affirming to them, I am the thing that you've been waiting for. I am the promised Messiah that God has said will come to you. I am is here and it is me. That's what Jesus is saying. And if it wasn't true, then it is a stonable offense. He is claiming to be the Messiah. He is claiming that he is God made flesh. Yahweh has been made flesh and made his dwelling among you. Do not be afraid. Jesus' comfort to the disciples is what his presence represents amongst them. That the long-awaited promise of God's reconciliation to mankind and the coming of God's kingdom on earth has arrived. Even though the sea of death and the storm may rage around them, the king has come. And he is going to establish a new kingdom No longer must the disciples wait in hope and anticipation for this Messiah because Jesus is saying, it is I, I'm here. I am is here at last. Yahweh has come to rescue them. The I am is walking towards them and he climbs into their boat. I love this story because it's such a beautiful reminder of what we read in John 1, that the word has been made flesh and made his dwelling among us. That God himself in human form climbs into a boat and, and they, they see him and they are able to walk with him and journey with him. The disciples gladly welcome him. 
And the good news is that this comfort doesn't just exist to the disciples, but it exists to us too. We are not Jewish people that have been waiting thousands of years for a Messiah, but the reality of Jesus being Messiah should be a comfort and good thing for us too. Because it means that God has reconciled us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. It means that we don't have to be separate from God anymore, that we don't have to work and strive and try and fulfill the law, which is insufficient to save us, but that Jesus's close intimacy is available to us right now because the I am has come. We can know that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah who came to earth. He proves time and time again that he is the I am. And in his death and resurrection, he proves that the I am has come to rescue us. And we need never be afraid again. Because in dying for us and rising to life, he conquers sin and death and fear forever. That doesn't mean that we're never going to be afraid, we're never going to worry, we're never going to be anxious. But it means that God has conquered those things. And we can look forward to a day where those things will be no more. And we can walk with God in our circumstances and our situations until that day comes. Jesus' statement, it is I, do not be afraid, rings through the ages. Because he is the I am, it changes absolutely everything. And like the disciples, we can walk with him through our fear and our doubt and our trials, whether in our own lives or in our church, in our nation, across the world. We too can be glad to take him into our boat, knowing that he will take us to that further shore where Revelation 21 speaks of what's going to happen when Jesus comes back again. And he creates a new heaven and a new earth. It says that the sea is no more. This symbolic sea that represents sin and death and judgment. The sea will be no more. That's something that we've been promised will happen. And we are going to be with Jesus forever. Hallelujah. So Jesus says to you this morning, beloved, it is I. Beloved means all of us, but it means you specifically too. Jesus is saying to you, it is I, I am. Do not be afraid. Whatever your circumstance, whatever you're walking through, let me walk with you. Let me into your boat. It is I, do not be afraid. Um, I think I'm going to invite the band back up. Uh, And I'm going to pray. And I just want you to take this opportunity. Um, If you're in a circumstance where you feel like things are really difficult, like you're in a storm, like you're being overwhelmed, take this moment to let the tenderness of Jesus speak to your heart. Let him say, it is I, do not be afraid to you. And if you feel like everything is going well, praise God, um, but also take this moment to just reflect on what it means that the I am has come into your life. Um, one of the things that we talked about and prayed for last week after Keith's sermon was, have you surrendered everything to God? Have you given yourself fully over to God? Have you said the fact that Jesus is here changes everything? Um, and if that's not something that you've done, I just encourage you to give yourself over and surrender yourself to him. So I'm going to pray. Lord, thank you that you became flesh and made your dwelling among us. Yeah. Lord, thank you that we can see you, that we can know you, that we can experience you through your word. 
that by your spirit you are in this room. And so, Lord, I pray that you would minister to our hearts the truth that you are here. That whatever we're going through, that you say, it is I, do not be afraid. God, I pray that we would know that tenderness of Jesus, the warm embrace and intimacy of God. And Lord, I pray that we would just surrender everything to you in response. Knowing that you are here, that you are good, that you are everything that you've promised, Lord. That we can trust you. Thank you, Lord. Amen.